passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. If you are newer to Crosswinds, uh, one of the things you'll, you'll soon notice about our church is that um, our regular diet, so to speak, of Sunday morning teaching is to work our way through a book of the Bible uh, from the beginning all the way to the end of that book. And, and the reason we do that is, is to ensure that our church is following the um, example of Paul. Paul in, in Acts chapter 20 says that um, he, uh, he, he taught the whole counsel of God to the church in Ephesus. And we want to be a people um, who are regularly exposed to the whole counsel of God. And we think that this is the best way of reading the Bible as individuals, is to go through a book and understand it in context, um, but also a, as a church as well. And so one of the things you'll see is that, that we don't skip um, problematic passages, uh, we don't run to the same passage, the same topic regularly unless it is over a, a number of weeks as we're looking at a specific theme in a book. It's because we want to be well-rounded in our diet of Scripture. And so with that in mind, we're actually beginning a new sermon series this morning in 2 Samuel. Uh, the book of 2 Samuel, as our sermon series title uh, declares, is a, a book about a king. And this idea about a king is, is a foreign one for us today. After all, our, our country was founded on the idea of rejecting a king, on the rejection of a monarchy. And, and we live in a, in a day, you know, I've, um, I have been, I, I shouldn't say following that, that's too strong of a word. Every now and then I, I see what's happening over in the UK with the royal family. And I'm just left scratching my head. I don't, I don't fully understand it. And, and so for us as, as Americans, this idea of royalty, of, of, of a monarchy, is, is more like an idle curiosity that we keep at a distance uh, because we bristle at the idea of a monarchy. And then we, we come to a book like 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and, and it's probably shocking to us, the, the importance of a king. And as this is an outdated idea, something that we've kind of moved past as a culture and a society. I think that's one of the reasons when we today come to the book of 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, and we'll, we'll mention here in a few moments the, the connection between these two books, one of the most common ways of reading these books is to just look at them as a collection of examples for us to follow. So act this way or, or don't act this way. And, and there are certainly examples in these books for us to pay attention to, and yet that type of reading of these books misses the, the main points of what God is, is doing, of what God is, is revealing to us as a church. It's, it's not just God saying, hey, be like that person, but instead the, the main overarching message of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is that we need God's king. We need not just any king, we need God's king. And that's what, at their core, the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel are ultimately about. They're this search for a king, and maybe to, to personalize that for us this morning, it's not just a search for a, a king for Israel, it's also about our search for a king. And the reality is, each and every one of us, whether we realize it or not, has a king. 
There is a king of your life. There is someone or something that is sitting on the throne of your life. Every single one of us ultimately answers to someone. And you might not use the word king, but you certainly have a king in your life. And the question is not this idea of, do we need a king? But the question is, what kind of king do you have? And so over the course of First and Second Samuel, we see these books, they don't just document this search for a king, they also provide us with a definition of what type of king we need. Last year, we went through 1 Samuel as a church. And if you were with us, one of the things that you heard, whether you remember it or not, one of the things you heard on an almost weekly basis was me say these words. We need a king who will point us to the true king, the king of glory, God himself. Now, when 1 Samuel were, were first written, Thousands of years ago, they were just one book. It was the book of Samuel. About a thousand years after that book was written, they split the book into two separate books, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And the reason is is pretty simple. It's because it was too big to fit on one scroll. And so they just said, hey, let's just split this in half, make this easier for us to navigate. But since these two books were originally one book meant to be read together, it stands to reason that the overarching point, the overarching message of 2 Samuel is the exact same as what we saw in 1 Samuel as well. It is that we need... You need a king who will point you to the king of glory, to God himself. The question is not whether or not you need a king. You have one. There is someone seated on the throne of your life. The question is, who is it? What is the king? Who is the king who reigns in your life? Who is your king? And this morning, as we pick up in 2 Samuel, we pick up in the midst of a crisis. We're we're in the middle of the story. 2 Samuel follows immediately on the heels of 1 Samuel. Israel has just lost its king, Saul. All of 2 Samuel chapter 1 is about David, this this future king of Israel. He's been anointed as the king of Israel. And the question, the burning question, it's not just a crisis for the nation of Israel. It's really a crisis, a testing point for King David. Because the question is, what kind of king is David going to be? How will he respond to this news of the death of Saul? Throughout 1 Samuel, when David steps onto the scene, Saul is trying to kill David. How will David respond now that Saul is dead? What kind of king will David be? Let's go ahead and open up 1 and 2 Samuel this morning, and uh, we'll find out. But before we do that, we're going to pray one more time. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see our need for a king. More than that, we ask that you would give us eyes to see our need for a king to lead us to you. We profess, we confess that you are the true king of the cosmos, of all that is seen, all that is unseen, of the distant galaxies of our own hearts, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that we would see you more clearly. Bless this time in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so as I kind of alluded to, we're picking up halfway through the story here. I think it's going to be appropriate for us to just take a, a couple more moments uh, to give us a little bit of an overview view of what we saw last year in 1 Samuel. I already mentioned 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. They're one book. They're all about this search for the king. And this all comes to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel, they come to Samuel. Samuel is a prophet. And they say, hey, you know what we want you to do for us? We want to have you give us a king. But they don't just ask for a king. Because there's nothing inherently wrong with having a king. They ask for a specific type of king. Notice their request in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll go ahead and throw up 8 verses 19 and 20. It says this, And the people said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we, may also, or that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is a really significant request here, not because this idea of a king is inherently wrong, but because of the reason why they wanted a king. Notice there's three reasons here. They want a king. First, to be like everyone else, which is always a good reason to do something. They want to be a king so they can be like the nations. Second, they want a king to be their leader. That's what they mean when they say our king may judge us. And third, they want a king to be their deliverer. They say that our king might fight our battles. A few chapters after this, in in 1 Samuel 8 and then 1 Samuel 12, we actually get God's view on what is taking place here in chapter 8. The significance of this request is revealed in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel the prophet is giving this oral history to the people of Israel of, of what is happening in this moment. And he says this, In ages past, when Israel would forget the Lord... He, God, would, for, would give them into the hand of Sisera. Sisera is this um, pagan army commander. Sisera, the commander of the army of Hotsor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And Israel cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. All right, let me pause right there. So what is uh, Samuel in this moment is kind of giving this oral history of Israel to this moment. He's saying every single time we forgot God, God as a way of bringing us back to him, when we would forget him, he would allow us to be oppressed by our enemies. And sometimes it would take years, sometimes it would take decades, but eventually we would come to our senses, we would return to the Lord, we'd cry out to God, and God would deliver us. So that's what's happened throughout our history. That's the way it's always worked. Our enemies are a wake-up call from God to return to him. Okay, let's pick up here. And you lived in safety. But this time, when you were oppressed... You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. You see what God is saying here through Samuel the prophet. He's saying every other time when you've been oppressed, you've understood how this works. You've understood that when you reject God, God allows us to be oppressed by our enemies. Then we come to our senses. We return to him. God delivers us. This time is completely different. 
Because this time, rather than returning to the Lord, you double down. You've forgotten God, and now you go a step further and saying, we don't want God to deliver us, we want a king. We want someone to come and fight our battles. We need a deliverer, but it's not you, God. Even though you're our king, we want a king like the nations who will be our deliverer. That's the heart of the problem in 1 Samuel. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that's the heart of our problem, the never-ending temptation facing us as well. We want a king who is going to replace the true king, not lead us to him. In fact, that's what we see in the Garden of Eden. The, The first sin, when sin enters into the world, the root problem is that God is seated on the throne and humanity says, nah, I'd rather be seated on the throne myself, thank you very much. We, as humanity, instead of following the true king, desire to replace the true king. And we want a king who is going to do that rather than leading us to him. And that's the testimony of the rest of 1 Samuel. You look at 1 Samuel, their first king, King Saul, he rejects the Lord. He refuses to listen to the Lord. He tries to use the Lord to further his own agenda. He replaces the Lord instead of leading God's people to him. And because he replaces the Lord or rejects the Lord, the Lord rejects him as king. And then in his place, God raises up a new king, a king who's not like the nations, but a king who is the the type of king that God wants. This king is named David. David is far from perfect, and yet he understands the type of of king God wants for his people, the type of king God's people actually need. What kind of king does God want? Well, God actually gives us the answer generations before Saul, generations before David. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, we see at least three attributes of the type of king that God wants over his people. People. Let's go ahead and look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. The first thing we see is this. The, the king is chosen by the Lord, and the king is chosen by the Lord to serve him. All right, let me repeat that again. The king is chosen by the Lord, and he's chosen by the Lord in order to serve him. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Now, because God is the the true king, he's the only one who has the authority to choose Israel's king. And because God is the true king, whoever the Lord chooses to be the king is responsible to him. And throughout 1 Samuel, we see that while Saul is chosen by the Lord, he doesn't see himself as accountable to God. So the first thing is, here, the, the king is chosen by the Lord and he's chosen to serve the Lord. Second thing we see is this. The king puts his trust in God alone. Rather than putting his trust in other places, the, the king is to put his trust in God alone. Verse 16. Only he, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So rather than relying on the most sophisticated weapons of the day, chariots, rather than entering into a number of political alliances with pagan nations through marriage, 
rather than acquiring a great deal of wealth in order to meet his people's needs, the king is instead supposed to trust in the Lord and only in the Lord. One other thing, the king is supposed to devote his entire life to obeying the word of God. Entire life devoted to obeying the word of God. Verse 18, and when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So millennia before the printing press, if you wanted to make a copy of a book, you had to write it out by hand. That was the only way to make a copy. And God astonishingly says that because my word is so important, one of the first things the king is supposed to do once the king becomes the king is to take the time to write out a copy of God's word. And this is so important that you're not supposed to outsource it to a servant. You're, you're supposed to do this yourself. And because it's so important, you have to bring it to the priests and make sure the priests read through it and approve it, that you didn't make any errors. You didn't leave out the parts that you didn't want to have in there. And all of this is because this is so important for the ruler to understand and have it govern how he is governing every day of his life. So Deuteronomy chapter 17 makes it clear that the kind of king God wants is this type of king, a king who points us to the king of glory, to God himself. That's the overarching message of 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we need a king who's going to point us to the king of glory. And throughout 1 Samuel, we see that Saul is not that type of king. He fails over and over again. But what about David? If you have an opportunity, read through 1 Samuel chapter 29, 1 Samuel chapter 30, and you'll begin to see that David is increasingly acting like Saul. He's ignoring God for 16 months. He lives in a pagan land. God is not mentioned once. Is David becoming another king like the nations? Will he be this king who replaces the Lord rather than leading us to him? And that's the type of question 2 Samuel chapter 1 answers. Go ahead and, and look. 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see that this is answering this question, what kind of king is David? Let's go ahead and look at verses 1 and 2. It says this, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So let's go ahead and pause here. 1 Samuel closes with two simultaneous events. Up in the north, let's go ahead and throw that map up here. Up in the north of the kingdom, we have this battle between Israel and the Philistines that's taking place at Mount Gilboa. And further south, even further south than Ziklag, we have David on this rescue mission to save his family. His family has been kidnapped by the Amalekites. We actually see David is successful, and, and 
the thing I, I pointed out or argued when we were going through 1 Samuel chapter 30 is that he's supernaturally successful because God is at work. And yet Saul and the kingdom and the people of Israel, the army of Israel up in the north, they are absolutely routed by the Philistines. So we open up to 2 Samuel, David and his men, they've returned to Ziklag. This is where they're living. And three days after they return home, a man comes from the battle that took place up north at Gilboa. The way he's dressed reveals that there's a tragedy that took place. He's dressed in mourning. And before he even opens his mouth, we know it's not going to be good news. Verse 3. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. So this young man brings news from the battlefield of Israel's destruction. Now, if we were reading through the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel uh, straight through, we would probably pick up on some familiar language between verse 3 and 4 here and something we would have read all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel is defeated by the Philistines. They, they're not just defeated, they're actually routed by the Philistine. A, a lone man flees the battle to bring news of Israel's destruction to Eli, Eli being Israel's leader. Notice the parallels here. So uh, a couple things that I want to just point out. David in verses 3 and 4 says, how did it go? Tell me. And then it culminates, the, the message from this man is to say the death of two of Israel's leaders, okay? So notice those two things. First Samuel chapter 4 says this, and he said, how did it go? Exact same words. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. The parallels are very clear here. The same question, the same response, culminating with the death of two of Israel's leaders. And the parallels are so strong. This isn't just a coincidence. We should ask, why is the author doing this? Why is... Why is this worded in this way? Why is there a connection here between 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 2 Samuel chapter 1? Well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we saw that Israel was defeated because it was a form of judgment upon Israel for their wickedness and the wickedness of their leaders. And if that was the case in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it would be safe for us to assume the exact same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Israel was defeated by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4 as, as a sign of judgment, and we see the exact same thing taking place here. Israel is defeated because of the wickedness of their leader, Saul, this man who has rejected the Lord. And we take a step back and we realize after all these years of Saul's kingdom, the, the people of Israel, they asked for a king like the nations. We get to the end of his reign and they are in the exact same place they were before. Before they asked for a king like the nations, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the message of 1 and 2 Samuel is abundantly clear. Israel's plan has failed. It's not too much to say that even if we haven't experienced the failure of our plan to have a king other than the Lord in our lives. We might not have experienced the failure now, but it will one day fail us. Let's keep reading. 
Israel's in the exact same state as they were before they asked for a king like the nations. Here, we see that this is utterly failed. This plan has utterly failed. The question remains, how is David going to respond? David has been on the run for Saul, from Saul for years. Is he going to rejoice in his death? Will he reward this messenger for bringing him good news? Well, actually, before we get to that, we see that this messenger isn't just a messenger in verses 6 through 10. Pick up in verse 6. And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Again, if you were reading through First and Second Samuel in one sitting, you would notice there are some discrepancies here between this account from the Amalekite, we find out he's an Amalekite, and what, act, what I, I just kind of revealed my cards, um, what actually took place in First Samuel chapter 31. There's some discrepancies here. There, 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul takes his own life here. This man claims to participate in a mercy killing. So what, what's going on here? Well, if you were reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, all in one shot, you would see multiple times Saul has tried to kill David, and it would be very natural to assume that David would be sick and tired of running from Saul, would be relieved that Saul was finally dead, that he was off his tail for good. One might even assume that David would reward the man who had struck down Saul so that his path to the throne at last is clear. And so it appears that this young man, this Amalekite, makes up the entire story. I, I read a commentator, um, he, he said kind of tongue-in-cheek, if you have the choice between siding with the narrator or with an Amalekite, you side with the narrator every time. That's just a you know, if you've ever met an Amalekite, no, you've never met an Amalekite. I haven't either. So this young man, he makes the entire story up. It seems highly unlikely. Uh, if you look at his story, you know, there's a couple flaws in it. First, the king of Israel just so happens to be on Mount Gilboa all by himself. None of his lieutenants are around to do this, and he has to ask an Amalekite. Highly unlikely. Again, the words of verse 6, notice how he describes his role in the battle. By chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. So we're supposed to believe this man's just on a, a you know, leisurely afternoon stroll through a battlefield and just comes across Saul in his death throes. Now, in all likelihood, this man is a scavenger. He was watching the battle from a distance, and once it was over, he began to pick over the trinkets of the, the fallen. Wonder of wonders, he finds the royal crown, he finds the armband before the Philistines do, and he knows he has a chance to exalt himself, exalt his position in Israel by bringing it to the man that Saul hated, to David, and so he runs all the way to Ziklag. I can imagine his, his imagination is running wild the entire time as, as he's on that journey. How will David respond? Will he reward this man with good news? Will David honor the slayer of Saul? Let's look at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David's response here is beautiful. 
Because even though Saul had attempted to murder him a number of times, David weeps at the news of Saul's death. And he mourns and he fasts for the rest of the day for Saul and for Jonathan and for all of Israel that was destroyed, defeated. We actually see this mourning of David goes on later on in chapter 1, the the second half of chapter 1. I'm actually going to just skip a couple verses and go to this section. It says this, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it was written in the book of Jashar. And he said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, or you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor field of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Your daughters, O Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David's not putting on an act here. He's legitimately distraught over the events that took place at Gilboa. His mourning is so real that he actually writes a song about it and he teaches it to all of Israel. That's in verses 17 and 18. And we don't have time to go through this song in great detail, but notice the broad movements of this song concerning Saul, Jonathan, and Israel. First, verses 19 through 21, David mentions the land of the Philistines and Gilboa itself. In these verses, he he knows that all of the Philistines will assume that the reason why they were victorious over Israel was not because it was a form of judgment from Israel's God upon Israel for their wicked leaders, but instead it was because their God was superior. And so what David is saying here at the very beginning is, is you know, this great mourning because it's ultimately rooted in the glory of God, that, that these people are praising Dagon or they will be praising Dagon, this false God, because of something that God has done as a form of judgment upon his own people. He says, tell it not in Gath. Don't, don't sing it in the streets of Ashkelon. These are our, our leading cities in Phil, uh, Philistia. Second, in verses 22 through 25, David focuses specifically on the death of Saul and of Jonathan. They're both mighty warriors. We saw that very clearly in 1 Samuel, specifically in 1 Samuel chapter 14. While 1 Samuel almost entirely focuses on the faults of Saul, the reality is he did bring a season of peace and even prosperity to the people of Israel. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 14, it's almost mentioned in passing. It says this, when Saul had taken the kingship of Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, and struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Here's the message of 1 Samuel. Saul's kingdom is ultimately a failure because it ends with his defeat, and it was brought about by years 
of rebelling God. And yet, he did bring peace to Israel. Now, were those worldly accomplishments enough? Were they enough to to get rid of, to satisfy, to save him from God's judgment? No. Worldly accomplishments are never enough to save us. And yet, in spite of all of Saul's faults, he did some good. And David, rather than focusing on those faults, David mourns the loss of Saul because of all the ways that God used Saul for the good of his people. Finally, in verses 25 through 27, David celebrates the faithfulness of Jonathan. Jonathan is his close friend. Jonathan, perhaps even more than Saul, had every reason to hate David. Because you look at 1 Samuel and you see that Jonathan is the heir to the throne. And David is his chief rival. And yet Jonathan willingly gives up his own kingdom for the chance of joining in God's plan, for the chance of joining in God's kingdom. Jonathan's love for David, and by extension, his love for the Lord, is astounding. In David, Jonathan has the one who the world says should be his chief rival, should be the one he hates more than anyone else, but instead, Jonathan sees a man after God's own heart, the one that God's people really need. David understands the cost that following God was for Jonathan. For Jonathan, following God and his plan meant it cost him his earthly kingdom. And yet Jonathan's approach to life, Jonathan's approach to the kingdom of God might be summed up in the immortal words of the missionary and martyr Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep so that he can gain what he cannot lose. Jonathan knew that the kingdom was never actually his. It belonged to the Lord. And as such, because it belonged to the Lord, the Lord was free to give it to whoever he saw fit. And Jonathan sacrifices for the sake of his friend. What sacrificial love. No wonder David declares that this love is extraordinary. It's because it's the greatest love that he has ever known. This sacrifice of self for the sake of the kingdom of God. If the test, uh, excuse me, if the death of Saul is this test for David to see what kind of king he is, well, here we see he passes. He passes not by rejoicing in the death of the Lord's anointed of Saul, but instead mourning the loss of Israel's king. And we see another way that David passes the test here in verses 13 through 16. It says this, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So here before we're given David's song of lament, we're told what he does with the messenger, the self-proclaimed killer of Israel's king. Rather than exalting him, he executes him. And in doing so, he establishes his kingdom, not in the blood of his predecessor, but in justice. And this is, I, I can't imagine how hard this was for David in this moment. He's in this, this difficult spot. On one hand, he might have doubted 
that this man was telling the, the truth, and yet he's the only witness to what has actually happened. And if he's to let him go, even if he doubts his story, then it looks like he's letting this man slide, what he's done slide because of the political benefit to himself. And so he, in, in the, the, the proper response of that day and age, he, he executes him for his confession of murdering Saul. Saul, as bad as he had been and was, was the Lord's anointed. And so to raise your hand against the Lord's anointed was also to raise your hand against the Lord himself. So again, David passes the test. Now, if 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel are about our need for a king who will point us to the king of glory, the God, God himself, we see that David does that. He, he deeply cares about the Lord and his glory, patterns his life around those truths. And yet one of the things that we will see increasingly in 2 Samuel is that he is not the perfect king. He is not the king we need. In fact, 2 Samuel makes it very clear that we need a better king. We need a king that's better than David himself. We don't need King David. We need the king of kings. You see how this passage points us to the true king, to Jesus, the one who leads us to the king of glory? Notice just two things I want, from, want to point out from these verses. First, in David's grief and mourning, we see Jesus' grief and mourning over death. I find one of the greatest comforts in the entire Bible in John, in John chapter 11. Jesus, faced with the death of his dear friend Lazarus, you might be familiar with the story. Jesus is friends with this man, Lazarus. Lazarus is, um, well, Jesus is off doing ministry in, in Galilee, and, and word is brought to him that his dear friend Lazarus, living 90 miles away near Jerusalem, is gravely ill. And you would think that Jesus would set out right away to heal his friend, or that Jesus, who has shown his ability to heal from great distances, would do just that, that he would say the words and Lazarus would be healed. Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He waits. He waits until his friend dies, and then he sets off for Jerusalem. Once he's going to the tomb where Lazarus is buried, he encounters Lazarus's sister, and they have this conversation. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Notice that Jesus weeps here. And we might ask why. If, well, if you read the end of John 11, you see that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few moments, just like a couple minutes from now. So he's, he's not crying because he didn't have a chance to say goodbye to his friend. And he's not crying because he's powerless. He knows exactly what he's about to do. So why is he weeping? Well, the only reason or the only answer that makes sense in the context of this story is that Jesus is crying because of death itself. That Jesus, staring death in the face in this moment, he's looking at grief, he's looking at loss of a dear friend. He's remembering how he and his father and the Holy Spirit, in the very beginning, how they set up their creation. And he knows 
in a way that is deeper and richer and truer than any of us could possibly know that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Death is not the way it is supposed to be. His creation is broken and damaged, and so it causes him to weep. But he doesn't just weep because it's broken and that death exists. He willingly goes to the cross to put death to death, to end all of our griefs, to blot out sin. David mourns the death of Saul and Jonathan, and in doing so, he points us to a better king. We have a better king who mourns the reality of death itself. That's our king, Jesus. He mourns the reality of death itself. More than that, he puts death to death at the cross. One other way, this text points us to a better king. Not only does David mourn in this passage, he also establishes a kingdom of justice. How much more is Jesus' kingdom a kingdom of justice? Matthew chapter 12. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved one, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew, describing the ministry of Jesus, says that Jesus brings the kingdom, and it is a kingdom of justice. David's kingdom is established in justice, and yet almost immediately we see injustice creeps in. The justice is, un, is, is incomplete because David himself is unjust. We need a better king, and we have one in Jesus, a king who establishes justice forever. Time after time, week after week, we're going to see the story of 2 Samuel is ultimately the story of Jesus, a better king. We have a king who will lead us to the king of glory, and that king is Jesus. The question for us is, do we belong to this king? Do we belong to this king who doesn't just weep at the death of his image bearers, but who tasted death? that we might escape it? Do we belong to this king who doesn't just establish justice at our expense, but the one who bore justice on the cross so that we might belong to him forever? We have a king who will lead us to the king of glory, to God himself, and that king is Jesus. Do you belong to him? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your kingdom. And we thank you for being our king. God, we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts, to look closely, to see if we're following you, if you are the king of our hearts, if you're on the throne of our lives, or if someone or something else is seated there. We need a better king. Thank you, God, for giving us that king in Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv.
thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.